Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text in Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. And we'll take it down through the end of the chapter, which is just through verse 35. But the pericope, the narrative section that we're going to look at, actually extends all the way down to verse 24 of the next chapter. And what we're looking at is the account of all the children that are born to Jacob and how they come about and the lessons that we can learn from them. So this whole section here from 2931 down to 30 verse 24 I had titled Sovereignty and Sin. We're looking at God's overruling our affairs even when we have sinned. And of course, this is a very important lesson in the life of Jacob. We've seen it already over and over again with his interactions with Esau, his brother, and his deception with his parents, and everything that he's done, even inadvertent stopping seemingly from a human coincidence a place called Bethel, or what became titled Bethel because he had the vision of God's dwelling place, this ladder that is the access point to heaven where God dwells, and that must be his house, so he calls it the house of God, Bethel. And it all seems very random and happenstance to him, but this is the sovereignty of God. And now we're going to see the sovereignty of God emerge again in a different way in his life, and that is through... Uh, favoritism with one of his wives, and and we're going to see this happen. And what's interesting here is there was favoritism on the part of his own parents, and with each of his parents towards one of their two sons. And now, interestingly, it is being passed along generationally, where he is going to show favoritism, and he, we're going to see that displayed in his life with his wives, and eventually. It's going to come out with his children as well, but that's a story for another day. So uh, starting in verse 31, we'll just take it down through the end of the chapter and then we'll begin discussing. We read this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi." She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, one of the things that is just kind of over all of this as we get into this whole kind of battle of the wives and all of this that ensues here in the, the these verses uh, down through the rest of the section is that we have one member of the family struggling against another for affection and recognition. 
And what could have been a rich experience in God's blessing was greatly tarnished by the tensions that divided the family, a division that remained in the tribes throughout the divided monarchy. The things that we are going to see now emerging with the birth of these children, and eventually they are going to become the tribes of Israel, that's going to persist long past the individual's And those characteristics are going to last many generations into the tribes and the history of this nation that is emerging through the promise to Abraham now fleshed out, not only through Isaac, but now Jacob, as as we will begin to see. So in verses 31 to 35, the first observation that we can make with regard to God's sovereignty is this. God in his justice blesses the oppressed and the despised as he builds his program. That's what we're seeing him do here. Not necessarily always. It's not prescriptive. In other words, this is what should always happen. But it is something that we can observe him doing in this, which means that it's possible that he can do this in the future and maybe even in our day and and beyond our days. That in God's justice, if there is somebody who is oppressed and despised, he may choose to bless that person and continue to operate and build his program that way. Now, again, like I said, it's not prescriptive, but it is going to have bearing on this particular episode in history, in the history of Israel. So in his justice, he is going to bless the oppressed and the one who is despised and going to build his program. And he's going to begin doing this through the oppressed and the despised, and that is none other than Leah. Jacob loves Rachel. That's no surprise. Uh, Here I would just give a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. We've come down hard on Jacob, and he deserves all of it. And by the way, I would just say that we deserve all of that and more if we're brutally honest about our lives and our spiritual walk and and the places where we have for improvement in our life, okay? So there's lots to say about Jacob and the negative lessons. We can certainly see uh, the shoe fitting our foot as well. And so we have to take that with a grain of salt. Here, keep in mind that he has been deceived, right? The preceding narrative was the deceived deceiver, and he gets tricked. He gets a taste of his own medicine, doesn't taste so good. But remember, just from a human standpoint, I mean, he never set out to have two wives. (laughs) His grandfather Abraham had one wife. His father before him, right? Isaac had one wife. He's not looking for two wives. He's looking for one wife. And he desires Rachel to be his wife, not Leah. And he gets tricked. So when the dust settles in a metaphorical sense, and he finds himself attached to these two women in matrimony, of course, this statement that persists in verse 30, that he loved Rachel more than Leah, that's going to carry, and it's going to carry on. Now, The interesting side from maybe not so much an emotional standpoint, but just a legal standpoint is once we are in a situation, God expects us to behave appropriately. 
And so here's the rub in all of this as far as application is if we find ourselves that we in a situation where we, we have sinned and we're facing the consequences and the aftermath of that, we now have to deal with that reality. Okay, Here, here's a perfect case in point in our own society. God obviously hates divorce. We're not going to counsel divorce. There may be some extreme circumstances where that could uh, be merited. And then even in the legal system uh, where it could perhaps be necessary. I know of a couple of extreme instances where that is the case uh, that I've personally seen and even talked to others about that. And there is agreement on that. I know there's some okay, we're not going to get into that debate, but the point is, is God hates divorce. I mean, we're told that throughout the Bible. Uh, Obviously the Pharisees tried to misuse that statement. Jesus had to correct that in Matthew chapter 19, appeal to Moses that marriage is from the beginning. And from the beginning, uh, it was intended that a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to the wife of his youth, uh, you know, cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh. Uh, Moses did not command them to get divorced, Moses permitted it because of the hardness of their heart. So bringing that back then full circle to this by way of example, it's not the right thing. It's not something that people should be pursuing. There should be reconciliation. I mean, if if a a party is married, if a, a man and a woman are married and they find themselves at a difficult place in their relationship, divorce should not be on the table. There should be a way to work that out, and there should be a desire on both parties' sides uh, to work that out. Is that always going to be the case? No. I've, I've been in other circumstances where one party wants to find a way to, to find resolution in a biblical way, and the other party doesn't. Well, you can't force somebody to. Okay? So now you have to deal with that. Well, what if... One party does want to be reconciled and then the other party that has already gone through with the divorce because now we live in a no-fault divorce country uh, and the other party's already gone through with it, divorced and remarried, well, now remarriage and reconciliation is off the table. Now you're stuck. And and then if there were kids involved in that situation, now we've got stepdads and stepmoms and we have this whole mess. Well, okay, this is where it comes back. Because now that we're in that situation, even though it wasn't a great way and perhaps it could have been avoided getting there, this is where we find ourselves. And both parties now have an obligation, if they profess faith in Christ, to honor the Lord in this new reality. And so I say that, that even though we can give Jacob the benefit of the doubt and understand how it is and why it is that he loves Rachel more, he's tricked and deceived than Leah, now he finds himself in this situation and God expects some, uh, he expects to be honored with the way Jacob treats his wife. And in other words, that now he's in a legal binding contract with these two women, he should not hate her and despise her in his heart. He now has to accept this and move on, and hatred's not an option. Uh, Just as favoritism shouldn't really be on the table, hatred, especially towards one's family, shouldn't be on the table as well, and yet it is. And so this is unfortunate. God sees this, and God's going to judge summarily and bless. And rather than being punitive, you know, I think Jacob would have really desired that Rachel is the first to bear him children, and yet Rachel's womb is going to be closed. Uh, her womb is barren, 
And we discover that God is the one who is ultimately over that. And so there's a lesson to be learned in that as well. Uh, And we've already seen this in Abraham. We've seen it in Isaac uh, with their wives, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. And now we're going to see it here that the womb that's closed is not necessarily all because of medical things and we just haven't found the right medical technology. We have to recognize that God is sovereign in and through all the available technology that we have and God has the ability to shut wombs and God has the ability to open wombs. And we've seen it not only in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families, but we've seen it when he shuts up the wombs of all those in the household and, and in the kingdom of Abimelech back in Genesis 20, verse 18, I believe it is. So there is something to remember with that. And by the way, not everybody who is barren is necessarily under the curse of God. And we have to remember that as well. But in this particular case, his justice and blessing falls on those who are oppressed and despised, and he uses them to begin building his program. So he goes through Leah here, and we see that Leah uh, bears four children. So the first four sons, anyway, the first four sons, and these are going to be the 12, right? This is going to be the 12. And and then eventually, you know, there's going to be some other things and some replacement here, uh, because, uh, it's going to be the sons of Joseph that are going to comprise the, the last two. Uh, but what we see is we see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah all here uh, in, in this. And so he's going to begin building and, and fulfilling his promises through the birth of these four. So Reuben's name, the Lord sees affliction. Simeon, the Lord hears. Uh, Levi, uh, hope for attachment, Judah prays for the Lord. All uh, this is all born to Leah. And interestingly, here we have Levi, the priestly tribe. He's going to become the priestly tribe. And Judah, this is the kingly line, and through whom we're going to see Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And even some of that's going to come out in the the blessing by Jacob on his deathbed to his sons. But it's it's fascinating to see that some of the most prominent, right, that are going to play such a huge role in the future with regard to the priestly system, and we're going to need a high priest, uh, one who is of the order of Melchizedek, even of a different priesthood than the priesthood of Levi. We're going to need a better priest. We're going to need a better king. We're going to need uh, a better prophet than even Moses, and we're going to have that. We're going to have the prophet, priest, and king in the form of, in the person of Jesus Christ. But we see uh, the foundation for all of that laid here, right here with the first four that are born directly to Leah. Well, that just gets us started here on the uh, battle of the wives, if you will. But God is already showing himself sovereign, even in the midst of the sinfulness of Jacob's hatred for Leah, where he blesses Leah and chooses in his divine and sovereign program to close the womb of Rachel. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll pick up the text then starting in chapter 30, verse 1 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website, at gfbc.net.